Good morning. My name is Devin Kahn, and the passage this morning we will be looking at comes from the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, there are pew Bibles underneath your pew. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Uh, This morning we are officially beginning the countdown to Easter. In just three weeks, it will be Easter Sunday, and we will celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Can't believe it. Three weeks. In two weeks, it will be Palm Sunday, and we will celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And in just one week, Pastor Wheat will be back preaching, and we will celebrate (laughs) his return. We are counting down to Easter. And so the next two weeks, we're going to look at what happens right before the triumphal entry. If you notice in your scripture, if you're there, Matthew chapter 21 starts the triumphal entry. We're going to look at what Jesus did and taught right before we get into that. So this is Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. And and if I could ask, if you can stand, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Matthew chapter 20. Starting in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What what do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant, really mad, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Please be seated. Let's pray as we dive in. Lord, would you teach us? Would you rebuke us? Would you correct us and train us in righteousness that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work you, Lord, have prepared for us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We don't just want a present. We want a better present than our brothers and sisters. We don't just want a promotion. We want to be higher up than our coworkers. We don't just want good grades, but we want better grades than our classmates. We aren't just looking for some likes to our post, but we are looking for a few more likes 
than others that we see. We don't just want a good yard, but a better yard than our neighbors. Or at least not the worst yard in the neighborhood. That way, at least, we can be above somebody. We don't just want well-behaved kids, but better-behaved kids than others. Or at least, not the worst kids. Especially at church. That way, at least, we can be above someone. I don't just want to be a good pastor. I want to be a great pastor. Now, that doesn't sound bad, but it very much depends on why I want to be a great pastor. Is it because I would love God to use me to win more souls to Christ? Or is it I want to be great so that more souls might lift me up in their minds? I'm afraid it's a muddy mixture. We all want greatness. We all want to rise above the pack. And we all know there's a recipe for greatness. But sadly, we've all been given the wrong recipe. And we've all been eating up this false greatness for years. Greatness is what we want, but instead... We have filled ourselves up with greed, envy, and a double portion of pride. For far too long, false greatness has been presented to us, and we have an appetite for more. Why? So that we might be bigger and better than our peers. The disciples in our passage craved this false greatness, and so do we. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem to meet his death. And while doing so, he has to gently correct the disciples and teach them what true greatness is. What is true greatness? In our, in our passage, Jesus gives us the recipe for, for true greatness. And here it is. The recipe for true greatness is a Christ-like surrendering. The recipe for true greatness is a Christ-like surrendering. So I want you to imagine that you're in one of your kitchen cabinets, and in this kitchen cabinet, right next to the salt, is a bottle of seasoning called Christ-like surrendering. I know this is cheesy, but hopefully it will help us all remember what the sermon was about. So you you pick up this bottle of seasoning called Christ-like surrendering. You pick it up, you turn it over, and you look at the ingredients. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at two of the ingredients that go into Christ-like surrendering. The first ingredient is gospel suffering. And the second ingredient is gospel serving. So let's talk about this first ingredient Gospel suffering. Now, when I say suffering here, I'm not talking about the pain that all people suffer living in a fallen world. Think sickness. All people will suffer that. The suffering I'm talking about, and Jesus is talking about here, is the pain that only Christians will suffer because we live in a fallen world. Think Obedience to God's law. 
gospel suffering. Well, why gospel suffering? Why gospel suffering? If we don't join gospel and suffering together, we will completely miss the point. John Owens writes about gospel obedience when he says, Obedience, rightly understood, is always in response to God's love. John Owens says, talking about gospel obedience... And not just obedience, but gospel obedience. Why does he write about gospel obedience? Because obedience, rightly understood, is always a response to God's love. Well, what is God's love? 1 John 4.10, love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Right, I could have said the first ingredient to Christ surrendering or Christ-like surrendering, is suffering. And I could have said the second ingredient is serving. I could have. And it would have been right. But I think for my gain, I would forget that the suffering and the serving that Christ calls us to is joined to the gospel. It is in response to the gospel. It's for my benefit. And I think it benefits us all if we talk about gospel obedience. That way we know why we're suffering. Because God loved us. We know, we know how to suffer because God enables us to suffer through his love. And we know that when the guilt hits us for not suffering enough for him, we know where to turn. God's love. Gospel suffering is our first ingredient. Why gospel first? Well, the gospel is always of first importance. It always comes first. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and and then to the twelve. May we never detach the most important gospel from any of our obedience. And may we never detach the obedience from the most important gospel. They go together or else you get neither. Gospel obedience. Gospel suffering. Even in our passage this morning, look at verse 28, which is the last verse of our passage. Jesus joins together gospel And suffering, gospel serving. Verse 28, Jesus says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our suffering and our serving is tied to the gospel, or else we've got it wrong. So let's now talk about gospel suffering. Look at verse 21 with me. Chapter 20, verse 21. Though in verse 20, we see a mom and her two sons come to Jesus right after he predicts his death and they, and they have a request. Verse 21. And he, and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. See, the disciples are asking not just for glory, but for more glory than the other disciples. 
In the previous chapter, at the very end of Matthew chapter 19, Jesus promises the disciples, those who follow me, disciples, will sit with me in glory. You will be on the throne. There will be 12 thrones and you will have a throne. You will sit with me in glory. And so the mom and the disciples make a power play and they ask Jesus, can we be at your right and left among all the 12 thrones? They're not just asking for glory. They've already been promised glory. They're asking for more glory than their peers. And it's not because they want to be closer to Jesus out of love. This is not, we can't imagine being far away from you, Jesus. Please let us sit next to you. This is not a humble question out of love. This is a question filled with pride and position and status. Verse 22, we see Jesus' response to this question. And Jesus gently translates what they just asked for because they really have no idea what they just asked for. And they're in for a rude awakening. Verse 22, if you'll, if you'll look with me, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? That's Jesus' response. He translates for them what they just asked for. The cup. The cup in the Bible can be used as a symbol of victory. But more often, and we know this probably more so, it's used as a symbol of suffering. Think Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus prays, Father, this is Matthew chapter 26, Father, Will you take this cup away from me? This cup of suffering. I'm about to go die on a cross. Please take this away. The cup is a symbol of suffering. And so Jesus asked them, are you ready to drink the cup? Are you ready to suffer like I suffer? Because that's what it's going to take for you to receive the glory that you want. One of the commentators says, a prayer for glory is a prayer for the cross. A prayer for glory is a prayer for the cross. And what do the disciples say to Jesus' question? Jesus says, are you ready to drink this cup? Look at verse 22, the second part. They say, we are able. Another person noted that these words, we are able to drink the cup, are some of the most, if not the most naive words ever spoken by human beings. Are you able to suffer like I'm going to suffer? We are able. Wow. There's some confidence for you. And in fact, their confidence proves lacking, proves false. Because in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus predicts once he gets arrested and once he goes to the cross that all the disciples will flee. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Jesus got arrested and the disciples fled. So they were, not a, they were not ready to drink the cup. They were not. In verse 23, Jesus predicts, text, read verse 23 with me. Jesus said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand is, is for my father to decide. You will drink my cup. So Jesus predicts here that 
in the future, they will suffer on account of his name's sake. And in fact, they do. James is the first martyr. And that's one of the disciples here. James and John are the two disciples with their mother coming to Jesus asking this request. James and John. James is the first martyr. And we see in Acts chapter 12, his death. Acts chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So he did drink the cup on account of the name of Christ. John, the other brother, did also drink the cup in a very different way, but he too suffered. He suffered persecution and exile. He was banished to an island, not for a fishing trip, but on the, for the sake of the gospel. Revelation 1.9, we read, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So both did drink the cup. Both did suffer. There's a, a, a guy that goes by the username Adam4D. I'm assuming that's not his real name. Adam4D. He's a, a writer, and he writes comic strips that are filled with satire in order to make a very powerful point. Uh, he's one of the guys behind Babylon B. Some of you know Babylon B. He uses satire to present powerful truths. One of his comic strips is entitled, God Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life. And he goes on to say, if you're a disciple of Jesus, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Just like he did for Jesus' original disciples. Peter, crucified upside down. Andrew, crucified. James, executed by King Herod's sword. John, lucky enough to grow old and die of natural causes. Philip, crucified upside down. Bartholomew, crucified upside down. Thomas, speared while praying. Matthew, speared. James, crucified. Thaddeus, crucified. Simon, crucified. God does have a wonderful plan for your life, Christian. And it involves gospel suffering. J.C. Ryle says, there is not one of you, I say, who does not wish to go to heaven. But I do sadly fear that many of you, without a mighty change, will never get there. Some warm words by a pastor. He goes on to say, you would like the crown, but you do not like the cross. You would like the happiness, but not the holiness. The victory, but not the fight. The reward, but not the labor. You would like the harvest, but not the plowing. And so I fear that many of you will never get to heaven. And Jesus has the same message to his disciples. We see 
after his first prediction that he would die and be raised from the dead in Matthew chapter 16, his first prediction of death and resurrection, we see very plainly what Jesus tells his disciples, what it looks like to follow Christ, what it looks like to have Christ-like surrendering as who you are. What does true greatness look like? Well, Matthew 16, 24, and 25, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. The recipe for true greatness is a Christ-like surrendering. And the first ingredient is gospel suffering. Now, what kind of cost are we really talking about here? What kind of cost can you expect to pay as a Christian? Is it crucifixion like the other disciples? Rico Tai says, it will cost us Christians in terms of comforts, careers, relationships, and perhaps even life itself. The first ingredient in a Christ-like surrendering is gospel suffering. The second ingredient is gospel serving. Second ingredient is gospel serving. Look with me in verse 24 through the end of our passage. Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their greatness, or their great ones, exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The second ingredient is gospel serving. What is this gospel serving? So we see the other disciples enter the scene, and they are very upset. And they're not upset out of love for Jesus. They're not upset because they wanted to be close to Jesus. They're upset because they wanted to be closer to Jesus than the other disciples. They are upset that these Two brothers, James and John, and the mom beat them to the punch of asking for more glory. And they are very upset. And we know this because of Jesus' response is not just to James and John. He gathers all of them to teach them what true greatness is. And he goes on to say that the world's, the world has a definition of greatness and it's messed up. And yet, oftentimes Christians our understanding of greatness is identical to the world's understanding of greatness. The world's messed up definition of greatness, the world has a wrong recipe, and the disciples have the same wrong recipe. They are asking for false greatness. One of the commentators I read says, uh, talking about, you know, Jesus talks about the Gentiles, the non-Christians. He says, this is the way they operate. May it never be so among you. 
There needs to be a difference between how the world sees greatness and the way our rulers are set up and the way we see greatness. One commentator says, The disciples hope to replace the self-serving, oppressive power structure of the Romans with their own self-serving, oppressive power structure. Nothing changes except the names of the rulers. The worldly ambition to be at the top and to beat down others still rules. Verse 26, Jesus says, it must not be so among you. We must be set apart. We are called to show the world truth and love, not to live the world's definition of truth and love. Verses 26 and 27, Jesus goes on to define and describe true greatness. And it's not what we think. It's not how we've been living. The world says greatness is getting a seat at the table. The Savior says greatness is waiting on those seated at the table. The world says greatness is being elevated among your peers. The Savior says greatness is being lower than your peers. The world teaches that those who rise to the top are the cream of the crop. The Bible teaches that those who fall to the floor are the co-heirs of Christ. The world says, fill yourself up so that you can be bigger and better than others. The Bible says, empty yourself out so that you can be serving others. What does this serving look like? It looks like verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And the picture we have of Christ serving, the most, uh, the most vivid picture we have, other than the cross, is him washing the disciples' feet. That's the serving Jesus is talking about. Jesus gets down and washes the filth off the feet of the other disciples. Christ serves us by washing our feet and more shockingly, washing our souls. That's what, that's what serving looks like. And we know the cross, we know the gospel, we know the cross is relevant to our past and to our future. But the present is a little cloudy. If I were to ask you, would you like all your past sins erased and gone? Yes. Go to the cross. If I were to ask you, would you like your future to be secured in glory? Yes, go to the cross. But what about those years when one becomes a Christian before he dies or she dies? What do we do in the present? What what does the cross mean in the present? If you would like your present defined, go to the cross. Yes, the cross erases our sins. Yes, the cross secures our future. But the cross, what Christ is saying, also defines how we live day to day. As one filled with Christ-like surrendering. As one who has gospel suffering and gospel serving. The gospel not just the engine that makes the serving go. But the gospel is the direction we go. 
Christ is our power to suffer and to serve, and he's also our example in order to do gospel suffering and gospel serving. Andrew Murray, who wrote Absolute Surrender, says, Do you love Christ? Do you long to be in Christ and yet not like him? Let death be to you the most desirable thing on earth, death to self and fellowship with Christ. In verse 28, the gospel is presented to us. In verse 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So who's giving their life as a ransom for many? Not just Jesus, it is Jesus, but the title. Look at the title. Who, who is it that is giving us the price for forgiveness of our sin? It's the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is a title... And if you look back to Daniel chapter 7, you see that title explained. You see that title, Son of Man, explained with a little bit more clarity. Here it is. You don't have to turn there. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Did you sense the power and the majesty in the description of the Son of Man? So who's the one giving his life up on a cross? The Son of Man. The one who deserves all glory, all power. The one who deserves everyone in the land to serve him. He's the one that bends low and suffers. He's the one that bends low and serves. Gospel suffering. Gospel serving. This is what it looks like in a believer's life to have Christ-like surrendering. Jesus is both our example. Do likewise, just as the Son of Man came not to be served. We do likewise. And we see in this passage how much greater he bent low than we. He is asking us to bend low and to suffer and to serve, but it's not nearly as low and as humble and, and, and humiliating as Christ, the Son of Man, bent low to serve. I'd like to make a motivational poster this morning together. Imagine this motivational poster goes in your office, in your school, in your locker room, whatever. There's a motivational poster, and it's going somewhere. And we have our word, greatness. In all caps and in bold, this is the motivational word, greatness. And all good motivational posters or pictures needs an inspiring picture to go along with it. So greatness, and I want you to imagine for our picture a crown, an amazing crown, a beautiful crown. Greatness, we got our picture, crown, 
and we need a, a very captivating slogan underneath. And here it is. I'm going to use Shakespeare here because he's always a good one to quote for motivational posters. Be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great. Some achieve greatness and some have greatness thrust upon them. So we got our word greatness. We've got our beautiful crown and we've got our slogan. Be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great. Some achieve greatness and some have greatness thrust upon them. Can you picture it? Can you picture it hanging on the wall of your house or your office or your school? Now, let me ask you this. Is the crown that you have pictured covered in gold or with thorns? We've been talking about the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, as the epitome of true greatness. But we are still so programmed to equate to equate greatness with power, riches, and superiority. The disciples had been hearing all along teachings on, and the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. They've been hearing this teaching for years, and yet they still forget, and so do we. So now I do want you to think of that motivational poster. And we have greatness. And we have the crown of thorns as our picture. And we have the slogan, be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. That's true greatness. Where does this gospel suffering and gospel serving take place? Where can I look in the real world where this gospel suffering and gospel serving should take place? There's three areas that you can look at. Three places. Look in your homes. Do you have a spouse? A child? A parent? A brother? A sister? A roommate? There are lots of opportunities for gospel suffering and gospel serving within our homes. Yes, it will cost you. Second place, look within your church. Nursery volunteers, greeters, Wednesday night kitchen volunteers, VBS volunteers. The Highland staff has a wonderful plan for your life. It's basically what I'm trying to say. Third place, look within your city. Last Sunday was Mercy Sunday. Get involved in one of those organizations that we support, that we've highlighted. The Center for Pregnancy Choices Life Walk is April 13th. You've seen the poster. Get involved. And don't just think, oh man, I need to add something to my current schedule, which is really busy and crazy. I'm exhausted. I have no energy. Man, that sounds awesome. Don't just think of adding new things, although sometimes that is the case. Laziness is real. But think of ways of serving gospel suffering and gospel serving in your current schedule with the current people around you. There are lots of people in our lives currently. What would that look like? This is not about suffering and serving out of guilt. It's gospel suffering. It's gospel serving. It's out of joy for what he has done for us. It is out of love for Jesus who freed us from slavery. 
That's what the ransom price is. The ransom price is a price paid to free someone out of slavery. And Christ paid the ultimate price so that we could be free from our sin and thus our destruction. We serve and we suffer out of love for Jesus. This is not about soothing our conscience. This is about a desire to be like Jesus who washed our feet and even more shockingly our soul. Oftentimes, one must give up something good for something great. You've probably heard that before. We all have to give up something good for something great. But remember the definition, the recipe of true greatness. What is true greatness? The recipe for true greatness is a Christ-like surrendering. It involves gospel suffering and gospel serving. I'd like to close with one last quote from J.C. Ryle, who I quoted earlier about how he looked at his congregation and he saw not many people going to heaven, although everyone wanted to go to heaven. He says this, Today is the cross, but tomorrow is the crown. Today is the labor, tomorrow is the wages. Today is the sowing, but tomorrow is the harvest. Today is the battle, but tomorrow is the rest. Today is the weeping, but tomorrow is the joy. And what is today compared to tomorrow? Today is at most but 70 years, but tomorrow is eternity. Let's pray. Oh God, there is nothing more glaring in my life that I need the gospel for than my own lack of suffering for your sake. Oh Lord, thank you for the scriptures who are clear that are clear on what the gospel is and may we meditate each day on what the gospel is because it is the gospel that will lead us to suffering. It is the gospel that is the engine. So Lord, help us to understand deeper and deeper the meaning of the gospel for us. Not just our past, not just our future, but also the present. Oh Lord, deepen, deepen our love for you. May our passion grow for you, Jesus from our understanding of what you have done for us. Oh Lord, may we preach the gospel daily to ourselves. May we, may we memorize gospel scriptures. May we sing the gospel. May we pray the gospel. May we study the gospel so that our passion can be inflamed towards the direction of which you call us to, gospel suffering and gospel serving. Lord, we need you more now than ever. So, Lord, would we not end this sermon in hopelessness, but in hope, because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.